Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Great show today. I have Aaron David Miller on the line. He is the Middle East expert and a scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center, who's been at the heart of pretty much every Arab-Israeli negotiation since the late 1980s. And we have a fascinating discussion uh, about the prospects, or lack thereof, of Middle East peace. So if you're a regular listener to Global Dispatches, you'll know that what I try to do with these interviews is weave together the narrative of the interviewee's life with historic foreign policy events, like where their life's work intersects with the big foreign policy issues of the day and talk about those. And sometimes those lead to some digressions. Uh, In the conversation you're about to hear, we start off on that course, but then sort of get into one big digression. And it's a fascinating digression. Don't get me wrong. I love this interview. Uh, But we didn't necessarily tell the life story of Aaron David Miller. We um, got bogged down in the politics of the Middle East, and it was a, and I'm glad that we did because it was a great conversation. So here it is, my conversation with Aaron David Miller of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. reality is Israel's leadership, uh, when it's been effective, particularly with respect to the Arab-Israeli issue, it's really a question of the transformation of hawks. The notion that somehow the left wing in Israel ever really controlled the pace or focus of decision-making is simply an illusion. Um, so this idea at, that like a, a right winger transforms to sort of see the light, someone like Menachem Begin well, that's exact, making peace that's exactly with what, That's exactly what has characterized the history of the country. I mean, I'll, I'll take you through a, sh- a short romp. You have yeah, Menachem Begin. Yeah, Menachem Begin, uh, as tough and as hardline a revisionist as any Israeli prime minister, responding or actually initiating together with Sadat secret contacts, which. Um, would lead ultimately Sadat to go to Jerusalem in November of 77 and create a situation which Menachem Begin, a man with the right, traded Sinai for um, an Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty on the assumption that uh, he could uh, part with Sinai in an effort to, to keep what to Begin was the, was the true treasure, which was the West Bank in, in Jerusalem. Along comes Rabin, the breaker of bones during the, in the, the first intifada, a pragmatic hawk, but a man who, uh, I think, um, after the in the wake of the assassination, whose memory has been somehow hijacked by those who attributed to her being positions on peacemaking that went far beyond what he was prepared to do. We'll never know, of course, and that's a terrible tragedy because he really was a, he really was a leader. Shamir, uh, probably as tough as Begin 
was the Israeli prime minister who, uh, in the wake of the first Persian Gulf War, after a tussle with the first Bush administration, I was part of that whole effort, uh, also agreed to go to Madrid. You have Sharon, um, the, the master architect of Israel's settlement movement, being the only Israeli political figure who could uh, essentially dismantle any settlements in Gaza and withdraw the IDF. And Benjamin Netanyahu, to this day, remains the only Israeli prime minister, the Likud prime minister, to concede any West Bank territory, which he did in two agreements. One, the Hebron Protocol, February of 1997, and the second, a small, tiny sliver of West Bank land in the Y River Agreement uh, in October of um, of 98. So it's an illusion to assume that somehow there is this good Israel versus the bad Israel. <laughs> the reality is that you're, you're talking about hard men responding to to exigencies and who adjusted and recalculated and recalibrated their efforts in an effort to uh, incrementally, in, in a very slow, evolutionary, hardly revolutionary manner, uh, represented the country with respect to peacemaking. The problem now is, yes, there's, there's no question there's been a, a shift to the right. The problem now is the absence of leadership fundamental problem of leadership. You've seen a series of very smart Israeli prime ministers, Ehud Barak, Ehud Olmert, Benjamin Netanyahu, now the longest surviving Israeli prime minister with the exception of David Ben-Gurion. Pretty incredible uh, factoid. No, it is. It's it's quite remarkable. Uh, so, you know, Netanyahu is not just some sort of political speed bump. He represents a certain authority and political space on the on the on the spectrum. But the problem is, um, yes, there's been a, a shift to the right, um, but an even more profound problem is the absence of strong leaders with authority and legitimacy, and the will and skill to conduct um, and lead this country at a time of extraordinary turbulence. And by the way, I just finished a book called The End of Greatness, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President. It's out. This is, this is part of a global leadership deficit. I mean, you have an Arab Spring, for example, and, and rebellion and revolution has, have been known to produce leaders. You have an Arab Spring that has, frankly, come and gone without leaving in its wake a single leader of consequence. You have five great powers that represent the five permanent members of the Security Council, there's not a single leader among them that you could describe as transformative. So this is not just... They love, they love uh, Hollande at the UN, from my experience. He's treated like a rock star at the UN right. and like a well, piece hardly, of rock uh, at, back at France. But he's hardly, he's hardly yeah. in, in cast in the mold of a de Gaulle. No, of course. Or even a, or even a Chirac. So, I, you know, I, I think this is not just an Israeli problem. I think it it is pervasive, and that's one that's why Mandela's passing was so extraordinary because it represented, to a certain degree, uh, a or it was emblematic of a huge deficit that now exists. So, so I think it's magnified in the Israeli case because Israel's a tiny country, but it exercises an extraordinary amount of influence and makes an amazing amount of noise. 
Um, so I, I wanted to uh, switch gears a little bit. Uh, you know, you're someone that I've been reading for a while. I've, I've been sort of seeing on TV and, and hearing on the radio. And I thought it'd be interesting to learn a little bit more uh, about you and, and how you came to this line of work. Uh, so where where exactly are you from? I, I sort of detect some Midwest Ohio. in your voice. Okay, I, I figured. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, all I ever wanted to do was be a history professor since I was yeah. in fifth grade, and I pursued that right what? up in, in the middle of graduate school at the University of Michigan. I was actually on my way to get a Ph.D. in American history, 19th century Civil War history. Huh. Well, uh, I was shaped and influenced by two individuals. I'm not, I don't know if it happens anymore to undergraduates um, at universities where they literally run into people that, that can alter the, the course of their lives. And I, I um, had two professors, Gerald Linderman, a, 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 um, an American scholar of, uh, who was an expert on war, and Richard Mitchell, who wrote the authoritative, the most authoritative book at least up until the 80s, on the Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood. These, both of these men were foreign service officers before they became academics. Where were you at school, at, where, you, where you saw them? University of Michigan, mm-hmm. both as an undergrad, and then I would go on to do graduate work with both of them. And I decided, rather than teach, it was the first leap, rather than teach out of textbooks or the library, I thought it, it, it would be much more relevant if I could actually teach out of real-life experiences, as they did. So I, I decided then, in large, in largely because of Mitchell's influence, he introduced me to the Middle East in a way that I'm not sure. You know, I'm, so uh, I'm not I'm, familiar with him. So he was writing about the the Muslim Brotherhood in like the 1960s, 1970s, and 80s. No, he was he wrote he wrote he wrote the book is the book is uh, Society of the Muslim Brothers. It's a it was basically the first political analysis of the mm-hmm. origins of the Brotherhood. Um, when did it come out? It came out, I think, in the 70s, uh, and. Mitchell was of Syrian ancestry, and uh, I'm an American Jew, and I had a very narrow view or vision. Mitchell Mitchell and Linderman fundamentally changed my orientation. I still wanted to be, I still wanted to be historian, but I, I really wanted to do something much more current. And what ended up happening is that I, uh, convinced the doctoral committee that if I learned necessary Middle Eastern languages, at least reading competency, and in my case, since I did, couldn't do statistics, I needed three languages, Arabic, Hebrew, and French, and if I could prepare orals in three completely new fields without taking courses, would they allow me to write a dissertation in um, Middle East history? And the answer was, yeah, if you can do all that, absolutely. So where did you uh, go to learn these languages? Well, here's what happened. Uh, it, was, it, was the, it was 1973. There's only one place in the world in 1973 you could study Arabic and Hebrew as living languages, and that was Jerusalem. So my wife Lindsay and I packed up and uh, moved to Jerusalem in May of 73. The problem was that in October, yeah, <laughs> seventy-three war broke out, which constituted the second 
phase of the transition. So you were living in Jerusalem in October uh, 73 when the Yom Kippur War broke out. Exactly. How did you experience that? Where where were you? That fundamentally created the second transition because... Well, could you tell a little bit more about sort of yeah, how you I mean, personally look, experienced I mean, the war? Unlike, Did you see unlike bombs dropping? Yeah. Uh, or the other wars that Israel experienced, even 67, where there was, there was confrontation in, in and around Jerusalem. This was, this was a war fought at Israel's borders with its cities largely left, um, well, not largely left, left untouched. There was a relative, other, other than the disappearance of young men from the street and certain goods from the stores. I guess if had you been a man from Mars and uh, you, you or a woman from Mars invited down, you would have seen a society that certainly didn't experience any sort of conflict in, in, in its actual cities. Wars were fought on the borders, but uh, it was an extraordinary experience, not all, all, all the same. We were encouraged by both of our parents not to stay, but we decided to stay. And um, over the next three or four weeks, um, in talking to people, uh, particularly some of our Palestinian contacts, I had an opportunity to actually, after the first ceasefire, to go to Sinai uh, and see firsthand, you know, the remnants of one of the largest conventional tank battles since the end of the Second World War. That experience represented another transition. I didn't want to be a historian anymore. I I wanted to find something that connected me to the actual contemporary history of this region. And when when we came back to Ann Arbor, my entire focus had shifted. I mean, I finished up my Ph.D., uh, ended up writing a dissertation on Saudi Arabian oil and American foreign policy, which brought me to Washington. And the combination of my fading interest in the academy and the university and the Washington experience basically um, launched me uh, on on an interest in a career at the Department of State. So So I went from... Well, can I ask you about that? Because I went from traditional historian to modern Middle Eastern historian to not wanting to be a historian. And... The evolution continued. I got I got a job on contract writing histories because I had a PhD for the Department of State's historical office and editing the foreign relations volume. That volume that lasted for a year and a half, and that wasn't what I wanted to do. I then was offered an opportunity at the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, which is probably my judgment relative to its size. And structure. It's the best analytical arm wow. of the entire U.S. government. The, the only one that got the Iraq uh, situation correct. Well, yeah. Well. I mean, well, it, yeah, I'm not sure they were the only ones, but I, I, I think that, you know, INR brought me in contact not just with history, but with com- contemporary Middle Eastern politics. Mm-hmm. And the seminal experience there was Israel's invasion of Lebanon in June mm-hmm. of 82. I worked can, nine can I days just- in Stop you yeah, for one sure. second. I mean, so so you describe this sort of this desire to want to sort of get involved in contemporary public policy issues. I mean, there are a lot of different ways that someone could go about doing that, but you opted to join the Foreign Service. Like, what no, made not, you think? Not join the, or, or not pardon me, to, to join the U.S. government, to join the State Department. Right. Like, what made yeah. you want to 
you know, go the official route as opposed to like work in you know the think tank world or or advocacy organizations? Well, half of my degree was Middle East, the other half was American diplomacy. So I had a great interest uh, in not only the diplomatic history of the United States, but I'm a you know I I uh, I I have an intense interest and passion and love for America. Despite all of its imperfections, it's an extraordinary country with an extraordinary history and an incredibly powerful capacity to to do all kinds of things, um, largely for the good if we're if we're smart enough. So the combination of that uh, seemed to suggest only one pathway. I mean, if you're not an academic, if you don't want to go into the private sector, then U.S. government, for someone like me, opens up the largest single source of employment. And I had always been fascinated by the Department of State, in large part because both Jerry Linderman and, and Dick Mitchell's careers were, were, were as Foreign Service officers. And uh, so, I was initially hired as a Foreign Service Reserve officer, the way the State Department hires its geographers, its analysts, and its, mm-hmm. and its lawyers, and its historians. That that um, status was ultimately abolished, and I had a choice whether to join the Foreign Service or to convert to to civil service, and I chose the latter. So where and, uh, where were you working in the State Department when uh, the Israeli invasion of, of Lebanon happened? I was at INR, and the Bureau what, of Intelligence and Research. And so did you sort of get an inkling that something was about to happen? Or can you maybe like set the scene maybe for people who aren't as familiar with like the, that that. Well, point in history about what was going well, on first and, of all, and this what was, caused this was the... Preceded, this was preceded by a year-long buildup of tensions along the border. It was only a matter of time. You had Begin and Sharon. Um, and what year is this? Uh, well, the... I mean, is, is Israel's history in southern Lebanon is a complicated one. And there have been many incursions of varying varieties and, and sizes until 80, until 82. Um, there had been a, a very shaky ceasefire um, agreement indirectly between Israel and the PLO, which held for almost a year, but it was only a matter of time. Uh, and Sharon's ambitions about what to do with Lebanon finally brought him to the point where he had a grandiose scheme, which involved defeating the PLO, pushing it out of Lebanon, trying to channel it into Jordan, the Jordanians would then be threatened. The king would be overthrown. Jordan would become the Palestinian state, and at least from Sharon's point of view, vantage point at that time, the Palestinian issue would be solved. Well, it was the paradox of paradoxes that what ultimately happened is yes, they defeated they defeated the PLO in southern Lebanon. Got also got bogged down in the internecine politics of, of Lebanon. Arafat was was pushed out, but instead of going to Jordan, he ended up in Tunis. That, of course, separated the PLO from its um, intense focus on armed struggle, and ultimately, quite to Sharon's dismay, and I had long conversations with him about this, what ended up happening is the PLO ended up as a political interlocutor without a military option, precisely because Sharon had pushed it out of the one area where it could credibly claim, like Hezbollah does today, to be in the vanguard of the confrontation and resistance against Israel. Ultimately, 
um, in the wake of the first intifada, 1987, roughly five years later, uh, Rabin made a judgment that um, neither Jordan nor the West Bankers could be Israel's interlocutor. That would lead to Oslo. And frankly, the return of the PLO to the center of Sharon's world, which is one of the great ironies, truly exquisitely painful from his point of view, ironies of Middle Eastern politics. And um, that 90 days uh, brought me into contact with uh, secretaries of state, uh, at least one. What was that? Who, what was that conversation like? Well, we were. These were. Remember, I was an INR briefer. I was yeah. charged. I was charged with. I was the PLO Lebanon analyst, and I was it, which is the height of arrogance and, and in large part, grandiosity. But that's the way INR works. The agency may have twelve analysts on Lebanon on, on Lebanese military and political developments. Um. INR has won, and it was me. And so, a very and, determinative, decisive period. So, so who is the Secretary of State that that called you into uh, his office? Well, I brief I briefed both Haig and and George Schultz during that period. Uh, I also remember sitting at my desk. My son Danny reminded me of this because I had actually forgotten it. Sitting at my desk one uh, uh, one day of. of of a few years later, again, I, I, in terms of contact, and it, it was Vice President Bush on the line commending me on a memo I'd written. You know, Kennedy used to call uh, INR analysts during Vietnam. So through that whole experience— Wait, so, is it, so, so you were called as, as an INR analyst by the Vice President of the United States? Happened, Did you have any it idea didn't that— hap- It didn't happen often— but it happened. Did you know he was calling you when when you picked no, up the phone? Absolutely not. It's the White House <laughs> sit room, basically. Oh hold for the vice president. And I what mean, did he say? Imagine. Did he just um, just like wanted to chit chat with you, or did he congratulate you? He wanted to commend you? me on a piece that I had written. That's impressive. Uh, uh, That's a good reflection yeah. on George H. Uh, w. Bush as well. I would it, say it does. I mean, he remember he was head of the CIA. He, mm-hmm. You know, the Bush forty one. You know, has an, a very analytical bent. And But I guess the broader point was, from historian to analyst, and now my appetite was, was somehow wet for uh, a policy role. And that, that evolution and change ultimately occurred. I ended up serving a temporary TDY in What's that? Amman, Jordan, at the embassy, temporary tour okay. at the embassy in Amman, and then came back convinced. I didn't want to join the Foreign Service, but I did want to get into the policy game. So I ended up getting a job on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff under George Shultz in uh, in 85. And from there on, 85 to 03, um, a good many years, I ended up working and, and being in contact with uh, six secretaries of state on one turned out on one big issue, which uh, was um, the Arab-Israeli negotiations. Either either an effort to start them, to maintain them, or to keep them from collapsing. In, in, Very rarely in, to complete any of them, but uh, nonetheless. 
what would you, um, you know, looking back on that 85 to 03 time frame, um, what would you consider like the high point, the most hopeful moment where you're in a negotiation and the negotiation reached a point where you thought, okay, we're, we're making progress. Uh, this could be a transformative moment. Well, the big one uh, was um, putting together the Madrid, helping Jim Baker um, put together the Madrid Peace Conference. I mean, that was the last, in my judgment, Bush 41 and Baker, last serious foreign policy we had in this country. It only lasted four years. And it was the last time the United States was was admired, feared, and respected. What? And watching, watching Why Baker, was that? Uh, well, it was a number of reasons. Number one, we had just pushed Saddam Hussein out of out of Kuwait, he had demonstrated the formidable power of the United States. We said what we meant, we meant what we said. Traveling with Baker was an extraordinary experience. None of the, and I I admired and respected the, the secretaries that I was around after Baker. None garnered the kind of respect, um, that he did. He represented the president. Everyone knew it. He was an incredible negotiator, not since Kissinger. These these are the two most consequential secretaries of state we've had in the last 40 years. Never had a secretary of state who was smarter, uh, more fun to work for. but isn't like President, the key variable that the fact that like he's you know the other person on the other end of, of the line knows that Baker is speaking for the president, right? Well, that they that's had a very that's tight important. relationship. That's important, but it's also Baker's skills. He was a he was a great actor, and you know you walked into a meeting, you you watched the other people. They're not sitting back in their chairs thinking about picking up their laundry or what they're going to have for dinner. They're they're sitting on the edge of their chair wondering, what's Baker want from me? Is there a specific moment that you can recall? What's he going to do to me? No, it happened no matter where we went. You you had a degree of respect and admiration. And I I won't call it fear, but a sense of trepidation that you were dealing with a one formidable guy. And, and that guy, um, with a number of us helping him, created something out of nothing, which was the Madrid Peace Conference, which didn't lead to, you know, as consequential developments as the Egyptian-Israeli Peace Treaty, which remains the single greatest American achievement in the Middle East to this day on the diplomatic side. But it would create a screen for the Israelis and Jordanians to conclude their treaty, got them started, it would allow the Oslo negotiators, even though that proved to be ultimately an abortive negotiation, it allowed the Oslo negotiators the cover required to pursue their agreement. And it, for the first time, brought representatives of the government of Israel and the government of Syria to sit down in the same room. It started a process that lasted from 91, during that first meeting, October 31st, 91, to the death of Hafez Assad in the, in the spring of, of 2000. Nine years, the Israelis and Syrians off and on sat negotiating. So Madrid created a table 
around which, no matter what excuse the Arabs and the Israelis wanted to use from here on in, the one excuse they couldn't use was that there was nobody at the other end of the table to talk to. And Baker did that. What? I guess and how? Bush, and Bush 41 had his back. How, how did you, he do that, do you think? Like, what? He did it because, first of all, he did it because the, the region, and Baker will be the first to admit, because the region was ripe. It was vulnerable. The United States had just pushed Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. The Syrians were worried, I think. They, 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 had, they watched their traditional patrons, the Russians, um, and wondered how long it would be until the former Soviet Union would collapse. Well, uh, it took about a year and a half. That's number one. Arafat was in was in the proverbial doghouse because he had backed Saddam Hussein, so he was vulnerable and needed a political win. The Israelis had been attacked by Scuds. Uh, the American military had destroyed most of the most of the Scud launchers, and yet the Israelis were knocked off balance by this. Uh, and. The Saudis and Gulfies had paid for most of this, and the Bush administration had promised them that if, in fact, things turned out well, that Washington would make a push uh, on the Arab-Israeli peace issue. But fundamentally, people respected and admired American credibility. Look, in life, the world's most compelling ideology is not capitalism, it's not nationalism, not even democracy. It's success. That's the world's most compelling ideology. Because success generates power, and it, it generates constituents. Failure generates the opposite. And in my judgment, we've been failing in the Middle East in war making and peacemaking since the last moment where we were actually succeeding. So, so you were probably in the room when some of these failures happened, I, I would imagine. Um, no, no. I mean, uh, remember, we were. Yeah, I was at. I was at most of the, uh, most of the efforts to negotiate uh, with the Israelis and the Syrians, the Israelis and the Palestinians. I was at Camp David in July of 2000. But it 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 also was a function of the fact that we were now confronting. For the first time, and Baker, Baker and Bush didn't didn't have to confront this. They confronted procedural issues. Those that came after them, particularly the Clinton administration and Bush 43, and and now Obama, confronts you know the crown jewels of the Arab-Israeli peace process: Jerusalem, border, security, refugees. These are unbelievably hard issues, and what was missing, and what has been missing in the last 10 years is an absence of ownership. You know, it was Larry Summers who said in the history of the world, nobody ever washed a rental car. You don't wash rental cars because you care only about what you own. And, and the reality is that neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians own this in a way that will compel them to make the kinds of decisions required. Neither Netanyahu nor Abbas are prepared to make the kinds of decisions required for conflict and an agreement between Israel and Palestinians. And, and it would also seem that the ability of an outside power to impose uh, 
those sort of decisions on them uh, is is limited. I mean, it's not you know this isn't the same world uh, that you know Baker and Bush were were living in. Uh, I agree. Uh, so I guess the dissatisfying conclusion might be that there is sort of no hope, right? That there is no uh, internal I mean, pressure, right, to, to do right. anything about it. There's no ability for an external actor, least of all the United States, to uh, impose the kind of strictures that are needed to, um, you know, Im- Im- like impose a two-state solution. So that that's just like so deeply dissatisfying. I mean, you know, maybe... I mean, I, you know, I, I, I hate you know, my own analysis since leaving government. That's been 11 years now has been consistently and un, an unrelentingly annoyingly negative. OK, completely annoyingly negative, not based on any ideological orientation, because I'm like Groucho Marx, you know, who said in Duck Soup, who are you going to believe me or lying eyes? I see what I see. I see a region melting down. I see civil war in, in, in Libya. Lebanon's a non-state. The putative state of Palestine is divided. It looks like Noah's Ark. There are two of everything, two sets of security services between Fatah and Hamas, two constitutions, two visions of where Palestine is and what it is supposed to be. Syria is in, the, in, in full-scale civil war. Iraq is highly decentralized. Um, and what isn't breaking down is dysfunctional. Egypt, Yemen. So We still got Tunisia. <laughs> the Tunisia, one and bright light. Tunisia and Kurdistan are functional polities. I, I would even, even say that the three most functional states in this region right now are the three non-Arabs. Turkey, Israel, and Iran. All are politically stable. All have tremendous economic potential. All have serious militaries and intelligence organizations. Two of the three have, one has an exceedingly close relationship with the U.S., Israel. The other is a member of NATO. So, no, this is, this is, not, a, this is not a time for big decisions. This is a time for function, to, to try to basically be competent. And that's even going to be difficult. So my, my own view of America and the Middle East is reduced to two basic points. Number one, we can't transform the region, and number two, we can't leave it. So if you can't transform and you can't extricate, you're only left, in my judgment, with one course of action. I call it transaction. That's what's important for the U.S. to do. You drill down on what are your core vital interests, and you try to relentlessly pursue them. You do not go looking for huge solutions, because in the end, I'm not sure this region is going to offer up for a while, anything more than outcomes. And so what you would get you... Those, if you get those, you'd be doing okay. What would you identify as the core U.S. interests then? There are three. Protecting and uh, preventing another attack against the continental United States, which is the organizing principle of any nation's foreign policy. Number two, weaning ourselves off of Arab hydrocarbons, which we are now in the process of doing. And number three, avoiding game changers. And the, the one that I see as the most potentially serious is, a, is an Iran with nukes. Those are the three core interests we have. We are not going to transform the Arab world in, in terms of its politics. I mean, you have 22 democracies that have maintained their democratic character since 1950. That's it. And neither India nor um, Turkey are on the list because during the last 
number of years, in the 70s and 80s, they suspended the democratic process. 22 countries. There is no country in, in the Arab world right now that, uh, with possible exception of Tunisia, in which the trend lines for gender equality, respect for human rights, freedom of conscience, competent government, all come together. So I wouldn't, I mean, we, we have to do what we can, but we have to be careful. And secondly, the Arab-Israeli conflict. I mean, I, you know, a conflict-ending solution right now seems to me not possible. Uh, so I would concentrate on the, one, on, on the issues that really do count, and they all relate to the security and prosperity of the United States. So uh, we got sidetracked, but it was a uh, fascinating and, and super interesting digression for me. Uh, I think we're, we're about out of time, but uh, thank you yeah. so much for speaking with me. Oh, no, no, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Aaron David Miller. Uh, and remember, you can subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and you'll find a number of options for subscribing to the podcast. And on globaldispatchespodcast.com, you'll find some contact information. Uh, send me an email and suggest topics to pursue or people to interview. Or if you have a praise, I certainly accept that. You can send me an email. Let me know how you think of this podcast, what you think of this podcast. Uh, and listen, I, I do this for you all. So uh, if there is something you want me to do differently or an area that you want me to explore or person you'd like me to interview, suggest it and I will be done. All right. Have a good one. Bye.